Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello, and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. I am joined today by Tim Holland of Orion. He is the chief investment officer there. Uh, He is also one of the foremost experts in corny 70s media trivia. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Tim. (laughs) Thank you, Daniel. I'm honored uh, to be on uh, on the show and honored to to, to be such an expert on, on 70s and early 80s uh, pop culture. It's a, it's a particular passion of mine. But it, it's, great to, it's great to be on here with you. I really appreciate it. No, I know we'll get into, I know we'll get into markets and uh, Smokey and the Bandit today. So both <laughs> something to look forward to. So first off, Tim, I want to start by talking about the disconnect that I think a lot of people are talking about between the market performance of 2020 and, and even early 21 uh, and most folks' experience of that year. You know, you've got nearly half a million uh, dead in the U.S. You've got civil unrest, a referendum on race in America, millions unemployed, uh, and the stock market just screams along as though nothing is happening. Uh, I know the market is forward-looking. I know the market is not the economy, uh, but this feels bigger than either of those truths. Like, what what sense do you make of it all? Yeah, no, and and you're right. The market isn't the economy, and as you know, and I, as I know, and many of your listeners probably know, the, the market tends to lead the real economy, right? Going down while the data is still good, sort of anticipating tougher times to come, and going up when um when the data is still still unpleasant, a- anticipating better times to come. But but you're right. This is just such an unusual and such an extreme. 12 months, give or take, um, you know, for our country and for our economy and, and the stock market. And, and not to diminish or minimize the, 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 the healthcare consequences, the financial consequences of this awful pandemic, but to try and square, you know, the, the, the circle that, that you're, you're, you're talking about. For me, it's, um, it's the policy response, right? It's the Federal Reserve uh, taking rates to zero and spending $120 billion a month buying government bonds and mortgage-backed securities. And it's the federal government spending trillions of dollars that helps explain uh, that disconnect. Because even if the market's not the real economy, it has been an extreme rebound in, in what we call risk assets, stocks, bonds, you name it, just about everything has done done well in the face of a still awful pandemic and still millions of people unemployed uh, relative to where we were a year ago and an unemployment rate that's twice where we were a year ago, along with all the other cultural and political challenges you, you've laid out. So for me, it's just the Federal Reserve and the federal government responding in an overwhelming fashion to the healthcare crisis and then the economic crisis that the healthcare crisis caused that explains this. Uh, and without that policy response by both entities, uh, I don't know where we would be. Uh, we certainly wouldn't be anywhere near where we are right now in terms of the stock market, the economy going in the right direction, even if we're not all the way back, um, the jobs that have been uh, brought back and, and so on. So, so for me, it's just a policy response that goes beyond anything this country has ever seen 
uh, in its modern economic history. I think that's how you sort of explain the disconnect, disconnect square, that, square that circle. And without the Fed and the federal government, uh, we would not be here. We'd probably be as bad as things still are for so many people. We'd be in a much tougher, much darker place. Now, I think a lot of people are skeptical of the size of the response. Do you have any, do you have any worries? What do you say to skeptics or critics of, of that sort of enormous response? Yeah, so I would say, what should they have done? Right. It's, 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 I, I get it. You know, we've spent trillions of dollars um, over the last year. The Fed has spent billions of dollars buying securities. And so the, the, the worry is what are the unintended consequences of, of that policy response? You know, what does that mean for the country? It's solvency, it's economy, it's, um, it's currency, all of it over the long term. And, and no one knows. And, and so I, I would say to, to folks that are worried about that, you know, what would you have had them do instead? And, and the problem with that is, well, if they had sort of taken more, a more judicious approach, were, were more incremental, you know, we may not have gotten in front of this thing from an economic and a market perspective. So we would be living with the still ongoing uh, healthcare consequences of this and an economy that's in much worse shape. And, and risk assets that are much lower, which means the average American is poorer than uh, they would be today. So, you know, it, it, I, don't, I don't envy Jay Powell. I don't envy the, 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 the politicians in D.C. because there was no real rule book, uh, uh, playbook for, for, for this pandemic and how to respond to it. But I, I think you want to go big and, and, and not to be flip about it, but worry about the consequences later, because if you don't go big, the structural damage that a pandemic and the policy response to the pandemic of shutting down the economy could do to the economy long-term, uh, the destroyed wealth, the destroyed jobs, a lot of that may have never come back. So I think you got to go big and, and almost worry about uh, the consequences later. Yeah, well, that's, that's certainly been their approach. And there's no, there's no doubt that things uh, uh, were and continue to be so bad that, that it yeah. uh, necessitates something, right? Necessitates yeah. something. Yeah, for sure. So let's turn our attention now to the, to the new year. We, yeah. have a, we have a new president. We have a new look Congress. We have a number of vaccines. Uh, what are some of your themes and, and what is sort of your outlook for the new year? What are your expectations of the market? Yeah, and this, this gets back, our, our thoughts on 2021 tie back, I think, nicely to, to the first question was, which was sort of the disconnect between the market, most folks' experiences last year, or the, the, the economy. And so thinking about the economy first, unless we're hit with another exogenous shock and, and the way I exogenous shocks that you know you can't model for them because they do come out of the blue to a certain extent so you know uh, god forbid you know efficacy doesn't uh, hold on the vaccine front or there's another strain of of the coronavirus that that um isn't um um sort of manageable with the vaccines that have already been produced or some sort of geopolitical dust up say between the US and China you know so barring that and hopefully we get lucky on that end after such an unlucky year last year the economy should do really, really well this year. You know, you know, four, five, six percent GDP growth. The rate of growth we haven't seen since the early '80s is likely because the federal government and the Federal Reserve have pushed so much money and liquidity into the market, and there's so much pent up demand as the economy reopens. 
you know, people and companies should just go out and spend a ton. And as we know, our economy is about 70% driven by, by the consumer. So as long as the economy continues to reopen, uh, uh, there's a lot of capital sitting in bank accounts and sitting in people's wallets and sitting on balance sheets that can then go get spent. So the economy should do really, really well this year. I mean, imagine, you know, Daniel, you know, you and your friends, if someone came to you today and said, hey, if you guys want, you can all get on a plane right now and go somewhere nice and not worry about a thing. If most folks, if they have the means or get in the car and drive to the beach or go somewhere, they're, they're going to do it. Go out to eat, go get a cup of coffee. So the economy should do really, really well this year. The markets, risk assets, you know, may not do as well as they did last year, partly because they did so well last year. And things like valuation are a little stretched. Uh, spreads in the bond market are pretty tight, which is another way of saying valuation's a little stretched. So we think the economy should do really well. We think the market should be okay, but it's likely uh, the, the inverse of last year, the economy rips, the markets do okay, as opposed to last year, where the economy started to come back, but the markets rip. So we're, we're directionally optimistic, but really optimistic on the economy. It should, be a, it should be a fantastic year for GDP growth, knock on wood. Yeah, the market, uh, the market not being the economy cuts both ways, unfortunately. Yeah. So we could, we could see a, a great year for the economy, a great year, hopefully, not, knock on wood, just when you were talking about going to get a coffee, going out to eat with friends, I, I started to daydream, right? Because it's <laughs> so, like, it just seems like it's been so long. And I know. my little, my little, my littlest kid talks all the time. The little four-year-old talks yeah. all the time about, can we do this when Corona's over? And, oh, you know, I think we're all, you know, I think we're all waiting for Corona to be over. Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. And right. That disconnect, that's a very good point, does cut both ways. And, and so we should all keep that in mind. That helps us set expectations and, and do all the things that you teach us uh, how to do on a day-to-day -day basis when it comes to investing in behavior and sort of making sure we're not our own worst enemy. But that disconnect for sure uh, can help uh, the market and then also can sort of weigh a little bit uh, on, on the market, depending on where you are in, 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 in that cycle. Yeah. So we're, we're coming off of a, a decade of blistering outperformance for the American market yeah. uh, in a decade in which not much has happened internationally, performance-wise. Uh, what's your take on emerging markets, international stocks in a post-COVID world? Yeah, so at a high level, um, we're from an asset allocation perspective, we're pretty evenly split uh, between the U.S. and and the rest of the world in terms of overweight or underweight. We're we're pretty neutral, um, uh, equally weighted vis-a-vis um, -vis what a portfolio would look like. So um, we see opportunity both here at home and and overseas. And you're right, the rest of the world has badly lagged the U.S. for a long time. We really like emerging market equities relative to, say, internet, classic international or developed uh, uh, equities. Um, valuation is, is, is very attractive. China is a huge part of the EM universe. By most counts, it's about 40% of the major emerging market equity indices. And China was the first country, right, um, to deal with the coronavirus. Their economy uh, rolled over first and, and came back first. So, uh, and they continue to do well from an economic perspective. So as long as China can continue to grow uh, and move in the right direction, that's a huge, huge tailwind for EM uh, broadly and for other EM uh, countries that tend to produce and, and, and export um, commodities right into places like China. So 
China grew, if memory serves, about 2.3% last year, according to the World Bank. So they are going to be likely the only major world economy to have grown. So if China continues to do well, that's, that's very constructive for EM at a high level. International developed equities were still underweight. If you look at Western Europe, uh, again, some of the same old structural challenges uh, that that continent has faced before they continue to face, right? They've got a single currency, but multiple approaches to fiscal policy. And even though we're still dealing with some really difficult days on the COVID-19 front, I'd argue it's even worse over there. They seem to be a little bit behind uh, us, um, if not other parts of the world, in terms of vaccines and getting that vaccine, uh, those vaccines distributed and, and, um, and, and, and to the people that, that need them. So uh, we're, we're pretty bullish, constructive on EM equities um, uh, going forward. And you're right, it's been a tough 10 relative years. So uh, parts of uh, uh, the, the rest of the world are set up pretty well uh, going forward, assuming uh, the world's economy can continue to reopen and we can get, um, get COVID-19 um, behind us. So I want to talk for a minute about the, the B word, which is bubbles. Yeah. Um, this is the word that I think <laughs> no, no, one likes to, no one likes to talk about, but I think it's yeah. important. Uh, Robert Schiller, so the famed behavioral economist, has six criteria for diagnosing a bubble. So I'll, I'll yeah. run them down real quick. Yeah, it's please. Sharp increases in asset prices, public yep. excitement, media frenzy, stories of people earning a lot of money that cause uh, envy, uh, and interest in the asset class among the general, uh, general public, rather, uh, and new era theories to justify price increases. So I want to talk about certain parts of the markets, right? Uh, SPAC, yeah. IPOs, large, large cap tech, crypto. All of these are, are experiencing, well, you know, what, what at a minimum we would call elevated valuations and, and some really sort of mind-blowing performance lately. Uh, yeah. Do you think that in certain areas of the market, the criteria for bubble uh, are met? Yeah, no, I, I think that's, you, you can make the case uh, for some, some parts of the market that you just laid out, uh, Daniel, that, that you know, people have gotten out over their skis and, and there's too much enthusiasm and, and too much capital chasing um, particular parts of the market. Um, it, it doesn't feel to us, though, that the stock market overall is, is there. But, you know, think about SPACs or maybe some of the IPOs and, 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 and um, maybe people have gone uh, too far too fast. Um, it, it's interesting about Professor Schiller is obviously, you know, um, well-known, well-respected, uh, you know, brilliant uh, observer of capital markets, best-selling author. Um, you know, one of the tools he's most famous for is the cyclically adjusted PE ratio, right? Uh, the, the, the CAPE. And it's, it's, it's elevated relative to its history. The only other couple points in time where the CAPE has been higher. So again, you know, I have a lot of respect for Professor Schiller and, 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 um, and his, his worldview. The interesting thing, though, about um, um, uh, the CAPE and cyclically adjusted PE is he also looks at... Um, um, uh, the yield, the CAPE yield, uh, sort of what's the market yielding relative to traditional fixed income. And I know we're going to get into this in a little bit. And stocks are, are more attractive than bonds, right? Not to get cute about it, but we tend to live in a relative world, not an absolute world. And so um, while there are clearly, I think, you know, pockets of, of frenzy, uh, you know, concentrated in certain parts of the market, stocks, broadly speaking, especially in a low rate environment, are much more attractive 
uh, we think than traditional fixed income, though traditional fixed income's got its place in any portfolio. So yeah, I would agree there are pockets of that. It doesn't feel structural or broad-based to us. Investors, we think, never really came back to equities after 08, 09. So it, it just doesn't feel like, like that broad-based excitement. It's more narrow. And, and at a high level, uh, even again, going back to Professor Schiller and the way he views things, his own data set says stocks are uh, more attractive than, say, traditional fixed income, which is a traditional competition for capital, for equities, and, and we think he's right. And then the final point, you know, you do get these pockets of, of excess. They happen. Uh, sometimes they deflate without any structural damage. If you think about Bitcoin a couple of years ago, going from zero to 20,000 back to, to essentially 1,000. Um, so you can have these smaller bubbles unwind or deflate without any structural damage. And we don't think there's anything, again, big enough uh, were it to be a bubble, um, were it to deflate, uh, the broader market would be at risk. And again, at a high level, um, stocks, um, um, we think are still pretty attractive, particularly relative to uh, traditional fixed income. So pockets of, pockets of froth, but perhaps not so widespread that people need to fundamentally rethink the way they go, go about their business. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and again, if you look at sort of stocks relative to bonds in the late 90s, um, you know, it just, it was a complete inverse. I mean, yields were what you could get in traditional fixed income relative to what stocks were, were offering was just night and day compared to where we are today. Um, and, and if you go back to 08 and 09, you know, you, you could argue that wasn't so much a, a stock market bubble, though, obviously the S&P was off 50% peak mm -hmm. to trough. It was a real estate bubble uh, that manifested itself in the credit markets, which bled into uh, uh, equities. So yeah, no, I think broadly speaking, stocks as an asset class um, are, are attractive, are a little expensive relative to their own history a little bit, uh, but, but attractive relative to, uh, to fix. And you don't have those warning signs that you saw in the late 90s where uh, just the asset class in general had, had disconnected from reality. Well, you you brought up fixed income, so let's yeah. talk about it. What what is the place of what is the place of fixed income in a world where there's uh, you know low rates, negative rates in some places? Uh, this has historically been portfolio ballast. Yeah. What do we do now for ballast in a portfolio, and do do bonds still have a place? Yeah, I, we think bonds still do have a place, um, but but you're right. You're you know you're starting from. Uh, a place of very, uh, very low, very low yields today. Uh, what's interesting, though, last year is that while equities did incredibly well, um, right for the full year, despite say the thirty-four percent pullback in the S and P peak to trough, we were up eighteen. The Nasdaq was up much more than that. Uh, even though we started the year last year with yields low, obviously they went a lot lower, but low relative to their own history. You know, through those first couple four months of the year when things were very difficult. Um, traditional fixed income did what it was supposed to do, which was catch a bid and offset the volatility in the equity part of the portfolio. So even with the U.S. 10-year at you know, 1.1%, uh, broadly speaking, traditional fixed income remains the only uh, uh, hedge really uh, that history shows is the only real hedge to, to, to broad equity exposure. So we do think traditional fixed income continues to have a role in asset class portfolios. We're a little more conservatively conservatively positioned within traditional fixed income because you're not getting paid uh, to really reach for yield to go further out uh, um, uh, on the curve. And we do think, um, you know, things, uh, you know, fixed income outside of traditional fixed income uh, offers opportunity, especially if the economy 
continues to come back. Corporate bonds have done really well, as have stocks, but broadly speaking, corporate bonds haven't come all the way back uh, in terms of value relative to where they were a, a year ago. So, yep, traditional fixed income, you know, U.S. government bonds, notes, bills, and the like, really the only hedge for broad equity exposure. Uh, but, you know, we think you can find yield in other parts of the market um, uh, where you're getting compensated for taking on uh, s- some of that risk. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's really no replacing as of today, traditional fixed income. So you make a great point about it, it having done its job when it needed to do its job. And I think that's something that, that folks really need to keep in mind. So from, from a behavioral perspective, what's your advice yeah. to investors who are living through this crazy time, who are probably personally taxed, right? They're going a little stir crazy in their houses. They're you know, not sleeping well. They're watching the news. What yeah. practical steps can they take to ensure that they're not sabotaging their investments? Yeah. But in, in all seriousness, though, though, though you have obviously talked about, we've talked a lot about you know, self-care and, and good habits and sort of the physical and mental uh, building blocks of, of one's life. And you, know, you probably, you can speak to that better than I can. But if you take care of that, it probably makes everything else much more uh, manageable. Um, but, but having said that, you know, from a behavioral perspective, you know, my advice would be, um, and it can be very difficult and very stressful day to day. Everyone's at home. Uh, some people are schooling their kids at home. Some of those kids have real uh, learning challenges, whatever it may be. Um, uh, some families have more resources, uh, financial and otherwise than, than, than others. Um, my advice vis-a-vis your portfolio um, uh, the investments, not, not making behavioral mistakes that get you into trouble would be, you know, we have been here before, um, you know, we've suffered through pandemics before it's been a hundred years, but we have, we've seen periods of great social, uh, unrest and societal change, the late sixties, uh, come to mind in particular, um, but, you know, over time, um, even though, uh, things aren't always linear, you know, at, at a high level, our economy has always expanded uh, more than it's contracted, and markets have gone up more than they've gone down, and our society has found a way to hold itself together and, and move forward. So, you know, working with an advisor, having a diversified portfolio, all of that, um, you know, can, can help someone sort of put periods of great volatility in perspective, look through them, take a longer-term view, but, but, but Maybe the, the biggest takeaway is, is just our country's faced incredibly difficult moments in the past. And over time, uh, while not everyone benefits equally, uh, it has become wealthier, uh, safer, and healthier. And I see no reason why those trends uh, would change long-term, even if they're interrupted near-term. And if you know that and you believe that, that allows you to take periods of of dislocation and distress and maybe put them in greater perspective. I think, you know, to your point, being a market historian or just being a historian broadly is one of the most powerful things you can do to put some of the the short-term 
dust-ups into perspective. We've been through a lot. Yeah. The the 20th century was a a horror from sort of a historical perspective. And and markets still were, were, you know, market participants were still richly rewarded. So Tim, we're going to begin to close up now. But as I I begin to close up, let's get a little personal. Let's talk about your biggest personal lesson of 2020. It was a year of so much tumult and change. What did you learn as a person in 2020 that you're taking with you? So what I've learned as a person is to try, and again, we've talked about this a lot, and I've read your books, Daniel. Um, I've tried to become uh, um, very aware of uh, and focused on what I can control and, and, and set aside and um, to a certain extent ignore what I can't control uh, because there's so much we can't control day to day, and then you go through a period of great uh, stress like the world's going through right now. And there's so much you can't control. And so much of what you can't control is negative that if you put your mind on that, boy, you're just going to tie yourself up in knots and, and you know, you're, you're not going to be able to move forward. So, so my greatest personal lesson has been, and we talked about this, you know, self-care, exercise, trying to stay in the present moment, but really focusing on what I can control which allows me to hopefully be productive and move forward and not get overwhelmed by all the difficulties out there. Not that I'm aware of it, not that I'm indifferent to it, but, but that's helped me a lot, focusing on what I can control. And another personal lesson, which ties back more to what we all do for a living, is um, the, the system held, right? The federal government uh, and the Federal Reserve printed trillions of dollars and took rates to zero and put a floor under the economy and the stock market. And I know that's more of a business lesson than, a, than an individual lesson, but for me, that's for me that's the most important takeaway from an economic perspective. The system held the system that's been in place for for, for decades and and over a hundred years with the Federal Reserve and and obviously the federal government goes back even further held. And if we can face a, a pandemic of global proportion, uh, uh, civil and, and and social unrest, a healthcare crisis unlike anything we've ever seen. The, the most dramatic downturn in the economy since the Great Depression, you know, not to be flip about it, but if the system can hold through that, I'd argue the system can hold through anything. And, and I, for me, that's the biggest professional takeaway, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I like both of those comments, like becoming, you know, being tuned in to what's going on, not being insensitive to the suffering or the, or yeah. the hardship that others are going through, but understanding what you can and can't control and and making, making your choices accordingly. And then understanding like, look, if we can make it through this intact, there's not much that we can't do. And I think, I think all of our institutions, I think all, all all of our institutions got, got pushed this year. So, oh man, yeah. You talk about a stress test and, and again, not to be, you know, too Pollyannish because, you know, tough times come and tough times can hang around for a long time. But if you think about the last 20 years and, and three as professional investors in uh, three major bear markets, three recessions, a real estate crisis, a pandemic, uh, the awful events of 9-11. I mean, this country has been through a lot in the last two decades. And, and, and I'm just optimistic that the, the next two decades uh, will be more constructive, will be uh, just easier. Um, and, and we've come through a lot. We've learned a lot. And, and I, I definitely think there are better days, better days ahead. Yeah, perfect. Well, uh, Tim, we're going to end where we started, which was by alluding to your affinity for, <laughs> uh, 
for the 70s. <laughs> so we're going to go to the lightning round now. I'll just ask you a question. You give me the first response that goes, comes to your head, all right? Yeah, go for it. Okay, greatest actor of the 70s. Oh, man. I know it's supposed to be quick. I got, I got to go with Burt Reynolds. Burt and T. Reynolds. Uh, that mustache, yeah. No, nobody was, nobody was cooler. And, and, you know, boy, did I want that Trans Am from Smoking the Bandit, the movie you referenced <laughs> earlier. I, I, got, I got to go with Burt. He, he was larger than life. Well, uh, having, having... How about been, you? How about how, me? How about you? Listen, man, I was born in October of 79. Oh, no. I'm not... 80s? uh, 80s? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Patrick Swayze? (laughs) (laughs) Roadhouse is... I mean, Patrick Swayze can play any role, right? Dirty Dance and Nobody Puts Baby in the Corner and Roadhouse, which is one of the great movies of all time. I don't know. At least, well, from my perspective. Listen, you're you're usurping my power on my own podcast. You ask sorry. questions. Oh, sorry. The the first movie that came to my mind was Point Break, and I'm very oh. ashamed of that. I'm very Donnie Utah, Bodie. Yeah. yeah. I've got <laughs> friends who who named their son Bodie because of that movie. And apparently he's just a handful. And I'm like, what'd you expect? What'd you, you think, man? Bodie, you kind of <laughs> asked for it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, so you are one of the sharpest dressed professionals I know. <laughs> I believe your wife is in the business of, yeah. right, of, of giving uh, a sartorial advice. What's your sartorial advice for the Zoom, the Zoom age? Yeah, I, I, I think set a, set a floor, right? Uh, you know, we, we don't have to go with a pocket square and, and, and tie, but, right, you know, it's just the way I think about it, dress slacks, Right. Nice shirt, sweater. Um, you know, you don't have to go crazy because we're all at home in the same boat. But, you know, just have a floor, sort of a, a sort of a, a, a dress coat. And, and it's going to lean towards dress pants and collared shirts and nice sweaters. And and just because and again, you know, this based on your what you do for a living and your background, your education, you know, it, it, it makes a difference. Right. Habit like that. I think good habits, great in structure. Um, sort of creates a certain mindset and, and makes you feel like you're going to work. And we are. And, and I think that's powerful because, and not to sort of um, think about it in a malicious sort of way, uh, a lot of folks aren't. And, and they're probably not as, as on their game as they maybe could be. So I, I think, yeah, dress code, you know, uh, good habits around that. Uh, you're going to work. So let's, let's dress like we're going to work. And I, th- I think good things will come from that. Yes, perfect. And final question: uh, If you were to construct a a Tim's greatest investors Mount Rushmore, who would yeah. be on your Mount Rushmore of great investors? Yeah. Oh boy. Um, if I had to keep it to three or four, you know, lots of familiar uh, uh, names like like um, like Warren Buffett, like Howard Marks. Um, I'm a big fan of James Grant, who writes Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Um, just his ability to sort of talk about currencies and interest rates and economic cycles over a long period of time and, and also put periods of froth and silliness in perspective. So I'd probably put, uh, put him up there. Um, I'd probably put George Soros as well. I've read some of his books and, you know, the, the, the concept, and I don't think he was the first one to articulate it, but the idea, and again, this is right in your wheelhouse, right? Reflexivity that participants in the market you know, 
impact uh, and, uh, and, and, and uh, interact with the market and then change or influence the market's direction. And I think we sometimes forget about that, that it's just a coming together of people deciding to buy or sell and, and, and those decisions then sort of feed on themselves. So I think Warren Buffett would be up there, Howard Marks, uh, James Grant, uh, uh, George Soros, um, for, for, for sure. And, and, and again, just the idea that there's always something uh, we can learn, uh, either from very well-known, very successful, very wealthy people, or maybe folks who aren't so wealthy and so successful, but in this business, in this space, keep an open mind. Uh, you know, good ideas and good advice can come from uh, anywhere, the famous and, and, and the not so famous. Perfect. So Tim, as we close out, uh, you're a frequent uh, writer. If people want to read what you're writing, if they want to read what you're sharing, where can they find your work? Yeah. So we would direct them, uh, Daniel, and they can also find a lot of your work as well there. Our our insights page uh, for Brinker Capital, which is blog.brinkercapital.com. You'll see our market and economic commentary. Uh, We produce uh, a weekly piece called The Weekly Wire. Uh, and then you'll see Daniel's um, behavioral finance um, uh, content, which is which is which is first rate. And if you uh, go to blog.brinkercapital.com and enter your email address, uh, we'll push that uh, content out to you on a regular basis. And uh, we promise we won't try and sell you anything. Tim Holland, thank you for helping us set a floor. I think some of us lost <laughs> ours in 2020. Thank you for helping us remember the importance of changing out of our sweatpants and giving us some great investing advice along the way. Thank you, Daniel. This was a real treat, a real honor. I really, I really appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast. It's been awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks again. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.